It's a joy to welcome in those of you who are joining us now live on the web. Glad to have you be a part of worship today with us at Freedom. We are uh, in a series entitled God-Centered Living, and today's the sixth installment of that. What we're going to be talking about today is about having a kingdom mindset. Up until now, we've been doing a series that really builds one lesson on the other where we've, we've come to understand, boy, God is always at work. He's at work around us, and we've got to get dialed into what God's doing, have eyes that begin to see that. And the first thing that we'll see as we recognize that is that God is always pursuing an intimate relationship with us, that that is his primary thing, is he wants a deep relationship with us. And the the next piece in this that we've been talking about is if you're going to have a meaningful relationship with God or anybody else, there's got to be two-way communication. And so we really camped on the idea of learning to hear the voice of God, learning to recognize what he's saying so that we can interact with him around that. And then last week we talked about how when you begin to hear from God, your faith is going to be stretched big time because God is going to not only just reveal warm, fuzzy things that you need to know that are going to make you feel better about yourself and about life, but he's going to call you to be a part of the God-sized things that he's doing in the world. So that's where we've been so far. Where we're going to go today is a little bit different. As we're talking about God-centered living, there's just a point where you have to recognize that we can say all of the aforementioned and still wind up very far from God, who He is and what He's really doing. Because you can be very subjective about your understanding of God and who He is and what He's doing in your life. I mean, you, you hear people do that all the time, don't you? Where you know they start talking about, well, God told me to do this, or I felt that God leading me to do that. And it's crazy stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with God or His character or His purposes or His agenda. And so it's very, very important that at the heart of everything that we're talking about, that this idea of God-centered living, that it has a solid foundation that really is the Word of God, the person of Jesus, and His agenda. It can't just be about, well, you know, I feel like you know God would want to do this. I think that God would want me to do that. Who cares what I think? Who cares what I feel if it is not rooted in the truth of God's word and in the person of Christ, who he is and what he's doing and what he has said in his word. If those things aren't leaked up, I can get a million miles off base and still be somebody who goes to church and reads my Bible and says my prayers. It just is easy to do because we'll be well-intentioned. But if we're not really careful, we'll remake God in our own image. We'll turn God into what we think God would be like. And oh, by the way, he'll look very middle class and American if we let ourselves do that. Because we do. We want God, we want his values to reflect our values. And so today is going to be one of those messages that is about getting back to the question of, no, what is God really like? What is his agenda and how does that relate to me? And so Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to go today. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to be covering a nice, sizable passage of Scripture that's really two things. We're going to cover a little account, very familiar account, of something that happened with Jesus and one person who encountered him. And then we're going to read a second story that's a parable that Jesus told while this first story was unfolding. The first portion of what we're going to read is the the account that if you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard the story and you sang the song about this little, short, despicable man that Jesus encountered by the name of Zacchaeus. We begin in verse 1 of Luke 19, where we read that Jesus entered Jericho. That's an interesting place to pick up this week. Seems like we just visited Jericho last week, didn't we? The walls were tumbling down last week in Jericho, but it's been 
at least 13 or 1400 years. Jericho has been rebuilt. Jericho is now a Jewish city and it is the Las Vegas of Jesus day. The closest thing to Las Vegas you would have found in the Holy Land in Jesus day. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through and a man was there by the name of of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. If there were a mob in Jesus' day, it would have been centered in Jericho, and the closest thing to the mob would have been the publicans, the tax collectors. These were the most wicked, uh, the biggest cheaters, the biggest, uh, the, the wealthiest people, the money launderers. I mean, this is the kind of crowd that Jesus is going to encounter in the city of Jericho, and he is running into one of the highest ranking people among these dirtiest scumbags in all of Israel. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, there is a significant pause between verses 7 and 8. We have no details of what happens during this time frame. We don't know if it's 30 minutes or five or six hours. But for some span of time, Jesus went into Zacchaeus' house and they talked. And obviously, Jesus presented him with the truth and confronted the reality of his life. And for however long it took to have that conversation... A radical change happens during that time. All these other people who wanted to get at Jesus are just having to wait outside to see what happens. And the longer Jesus is in the home of one of the most notorious people in their community, the more frustrated they are at Jesus. Verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham for the son of man. And that's how Jesus most frequently liked to refer to himself for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, that would be a nice little bookend to conclude the story. But it's interesting to note that Luke goes on to tell us that while they were listening to this, as this is happening, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Jesus is just a few miles from Jerusalem. He is headed into Jerusalem. This is the final trip to Jerusalem. Within just the next few days, he will be welcomed as the next king. The crowds are going to go crazy because they are convinced the kingdom of God is arriving in the the person of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They're already getting a sense of this as he's coming through Jericho. He is getting close to the holy city. He's about to go in and take power. It's going to happen. We're finally going to be free. We're going to have power. The Romans are going to be run out. It's about to take place. And Jesus stops them and tells them a story. Jesus' favorite way of teaching was by telling stories. And he tells them a story that is quite honestly, it's one of the most peculiar stories of all the teaching parables Jesus ever gave in the Gospels. So hang with me. We're going to back up and unpack this. Uh, It will make sense to you. Here's the story. Jesus said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas. A mina is just... 
it, it's a weight. It's a measure of money. It's, uh, don't worry about how much it was. It was just it was 60 shekels. We don't know if they were gold shekels or silver shekels. It doesn't matter. It's just he gave each one some money to tend to while he was gone. And here's what he said to them about that. Put this money to work until I come back. Don't just hold it for me. You put to work what I put in your hands. That's a key part of the teaching. Verse 14. But his subjects, some of his subjects, hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. But he was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And the first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, you take charge of ten cities. Wow. Huge payoff. And the second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Another huge payoff. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And then Jesus gives us a very significant life principle in verse 26 when he says, I tell you that everyone who has... More will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Would you agree that that is one of the more peculiar, striking parables that Jesus ever used to teach? What's it all about? Well, it begins with a bit of an odd setting that we may read and go, do what? He, and we're going to take some time first. We're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking the parable, and then we're going to go back to the original story that we read. But first, some thoughts about the parable, because it's, it's key for us today. The whole idea of there was a noble man who went away to another country to be made king so that he could come back and rule. And while he was away, people that he would have been ruling come charging after him to say, we don't want him as king, but he comes back as king anyway. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, will you indulge me three minutes to give you a quick history lesson as, so that this makes more sense. Everybody who heard Jesus giving this illustration, it would click for them immediately what he's talking about. For us, we'd be like, how do you go to a foreign country to be made king of this country even when the people don't want you? Everybody in Jesus' lifetime recognized the story that this was based upon. You'll remember that when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was the king over Palestine. He was the, the reigning regional king. Rome was in charge, but in that region, Herod was the assigned king. He was a wicked king, Herod the Great. Well, when Jesus was very young, Herod died, and right before he died, he changed his will. And he said that the, the land that he ruled over should be split into three different sections, and three of his sons would have the opportunity to reign as regional kings over those three different areas. 
to Herod Antipas, he left the region that is Galilee. That's the northern part of, of Israel. That's where Jesus was born. To Herod Philip I, he left the area east of the Jordan River. And to Archelaus, he left about three quarters of what is the Holy Land today. Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. Well, as soon as Herod died, there was going to be controversy about whether or not these guys would really get to take that over. Because Herod was just kind of a, a second level king. He still was answerable to Caesar Augustus the head of the entire Roman Empire. And so as soon as he died, Archelaus tried to, to take over the, the territory that at the last minute had been assigned to him. Caesar had not yet named him as king, but he tried to, to step into that role as best he could. And there was an uprising immediately in the first few days. There was murmuring and stuff that was happening at the temple. And on the night when the Jewish people started getting together and saying, we really don't want this guy to be king. And he heard what was going on. And he sent in soldiers and they mur he murdered 3,000 Jews that night in the temple in Jerusalem. Immediately thereafter, I mean like the next day, he hightailed it to Rome to go to Caesar Augustus to have the will of his father ratified, saying, declare that I am king of the Holy Land, the region that my dad left to me. Make it so, so that I'll be in charge of the army and the people will have to submit to me. Well, the Jewish people, as you can imagine, now that he's had 3,000 of them murdered, they are furious. And so they send a delegation of 50 Jewish men to Rome to appeal to Caesar to say, please, we do not want this man to be our king. Caesar Augustus weighed this out for a while. One of his most trusted advisors was the ruler of Damascus, who happened to be in Rome at the time. And the ruler of Damascus came in and spoke on behalf of Archelaus and said he would make a good king. This was the wish of Herod the Great. You should install him. Caesar Augustus listened. He ignored the appeals of the Jewish people. And he, he said, I'm not going to make you king. I alone am the sovereign ruler over all the empire, but I will make you the regional ruler. We don't want to call you king, so we will make you ethnarch. That is the monarch who is from the ethnic group of people who were there. So you get to be sort of sub-king. You are going to be the ethnarch of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. So he goes back and he rules for years as the regional king over this whole area. So now if you're one of Jesus' listeners that day and you hear a story about a nobleman who went to a foreign country to be made king and while he was there, people from that country came and said, we don't want him as our king, but he was made king anyway. And he came back and ruled over the people and he called them to account. And he was a very stern ruler. Would it be very difficult for you to, to recognize this story? The people all are going, yeah, we know this story. We know how it turns out he's going to be king. That's the background for the story that Jesus tells. What in the world does Jesus want us to learn from this? Well, first and foremost, Jesus is teaching on the subject that he taught about just about every time that he opened his mouth. He is teaching on the kingdom of God. You can't be a follower of Christ without knowing about and participating in the kingdom of God. You see, when Jesus came to earth... He came to bring us into the kingdom of God and to bring the kingdom of God here to earth. And it's amazing to me how many people today attend church and profess Christ as Lord and have no idea what it really means to belong to the kingdom of God or to, to hold as your priorities a kingdom agenda, to have a kingdom mindset. Jesus is driving this whole concept home in this passage. Remember, in the one verse that sets up this passage in verse 11, He said, He told them this story... 
because he was about to go into Jerusalem and the people believed that the kingdom of God was about to come right then. They had a wrong idea of what the kingdom of God was all about. And Jesus tells this story to help them get some straight thinking about this. So here are some basic, and and I'm just going to move through this very quickly. I really want you to be in your small group this week because in your small group, you're going to go back in much more detail. You're going to unpack this this parable. But five things that I want to point out to you that that we need to understand from this parable. The first one is that in, in a kingdom, servants live to please the king. And this is... I know that's real basic, but this is real fundamental for us to get, and it's foreign for us. Because we live in a republic. We live in a place where we elect our leaders, and if we don't like what they do, first of all, we gripe and complain about it a whole lot, and we listen to talking heads on TV gripe and complain about it, and then we vote them out of office. Or if we're really stupid, we vote them back in office so we can complain some more about it. But... You know how things work in a republic. We are so far removed from understanding what it means to truly live in a kingdom where there is a sovereign ruler who cannot be deposed. He will be king for as long as he lives. And in a kingdom, everything's about the king. Whether you like what the king has to say or whether you hate it, everything is about the king. And the servants of the king don't get to sit back and go, hmm, I'm not sure I really like that. You know, when you said this and this, I thought those were pretty cool and I was all for you. But, you know, when you said this, when you said this about my money, when you said this about relationships, when you said this about sexuality, I'm not sure I'm crazy about that. I mean, King Jesus, I think we may need to table that. We'll we'll come back. Maybe we'll treat that as advanced Christianity and we'll get around that to, to that later. No, in a kingdom, the king's word is final. Everything is about the king and what he says, and we don't get to vote on it. We don't get to have a say in it. The king has the final word. Servants just do what the king says. Jesus is represented by the king in this story very clearly, which brings us to the second truth, and that is when you consider how the story unfolds, that it starts out with this man just as a noble man, just an ordinary man who leaves. And it's gone for an extended season. He leaves an ordinary man. He returns as reigning king. That's a key piece in the story. When Jesus came to earth, the only real glimpse that we've gotten of Jesus, he looked like an ordinary man. He lived as an ordinary man. He was the suffering servant. He was just a teacher in Palestine. Jesus came to earth as Savior, but he will return to earth as the reigning king. Now, that's not just, oh, that, that, you know, that makes for a great song or that makes for a great preacher speak. No, this is a huge part of the parable. If you think that the Jesus that you read about in the Bible and how he functioned when he lived on earth the first time around resembles what it's going to be like when he comes back to earth. You're in for a rude awakening. Oh, it's the same person. But how he lives and interacts is going to look so very different. Because he came as the suffering servant the first time. There will be no suffering servant the second time. He will be large and in charge. He will be coming to call everyone to account. Which, oh, by the way, is what the king does in this story. He is not coming to live a lowly life to feel all of our pains. He has been there and done that. Check the box. 
He is coming back fully God, fully in charge, calling to account every living being in the universe. It will be a very different experience when he returns to earth. That brings us to the third truth, and that is the king has given every servant the opportunity to demonstrate commitment and initiative. It's such a, a central piece in the story that this nobleman, before he goes to be king, he knows that when he comes back, he's, it's critically important in his reign that there have to be people that he can trust and to whom he can hand off and assign major responsibilities. And so he decides that he's going to test people. He's going to give them a really healthy test. He's going to give each of them resources which become opportunities in their hands. So that while he is away, they have tremendous freedom to do whatever they want to with what they've been given. The whole time he's gone, they can do anything they want to with what's been put in their hands. The one instruction is you put it to work. You do something useful with what I put in your hands. And when the king comes back, there's going to be a reckoning. But to each one, he's given opportunities. Not hard to figure out what that symbolizes, is it? For every one of us, we're living in the phase that we read about while the nobleman is away. He's been made king and he hasn't returned to the land yet. But to every single one of us, he has placed in our hands opportunities. The story's not about money. It's about opportunities. The, the money was simply a tangible expression of opportunities which served as a test. A test of faithfulness. A test of commitment. A test of who can be trusted. A test of who would lead well. And for all of us, the king has done the same thing. He's in heaven right now. He is with his father. He is awaiting an appointed day and moment in time when he will return physically visibly to the earth and he will reign and life will change drastically when he returns to the earth. In the meantime, he has put in your hands opportunities that are a gift from him and his instruction to you are the same as those of the king. Put it to work. Make good use of the opportunities. Do not squander the opportunities that I've given to you. Brings us to the fourth truth. When he returns, the king richly rewards faithfulness, but he absolutely rejects excuses. Boy, I mean, it's just in your face in the story how strong that is, isn't it? When he comes back and, and the first guy that he calls to account says, Hey, what'd you do over here, Jeff, with, with what I gave to you? What'd you do with those opportunities? And Jeff comes up and he says, Well, you gave me... Lord, you gave me one minor. You gave me 60 shekels. Here's 600 shekels. This, you know, I took some chances. I took some risks. I took some initiative. But it paid off. Now, Lord, here, I'm giving it all back to you. I'm not asking for a cut. You gave me those opportunities because I'm supposed to serve and bless you. So here, Lord, here's what's yours. To the next one, what did you do with what I gave you? Well, you gave me one minor. You gave me 60 shekels. Here's 300 shekels. I took some chances as well. Some of it didn't pay off. Some of it did. But, but here's five times what you gave to me. Great. To you, 
I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. You will rule over them. I'm giving you great responsibility, great authority, because you have demonstrated that you could be faithful with a little, so I'm going to trust you with a lot. To you who've been faithful with the same little bit, and, and the return wasn't as great, but you've demonstrated your gifts, your heart, your commitment. I'm going to give you five cities to be in charge of. But then as he goes on down the line, the next guy, what did you do, Todd? What did you do with the one that I gave to you, Todd? Man, I'm sorry, you were just sitting in the wrong place today. <laughs> Todd comes back and says, look, Lord, here's the 60 shekels you gave me to begin with. Didn't lose a one. See, I've kept them wrapped in this cloth. I buried them so nobody would know where they were. Giving you back exactly what you gave to me. Well, that would be great if what I told you to do was to wrap it in a cloth and bury it. But that's not what I told you to do. This was a test. I was giving you an opportunity. I told you to put it to work. And what you did was you put it in a safe place. You laid it to rest. You did nothing with it. To his other servants. He said, go over here to Todd. Take away the, the one minor that I gave him. Give it to Jeff over here. Give it to somebody who knows what to do with it. Give it to somebody who won't waste an opportunity. And the onlookers are going, Sir, that doesn't seem very fair. I mean, he already has ten over here. And I mean, why would somebody who has, has ten need any more? And he's saying, Because in, in life and in the kingdom, this is how it works. Those who take advantage of the opportunities that they have been given, those who have been tested and found faithful, they will be given greater opportunities. They will be given greater responsibility, greater reward in this life and in eternity. And those who squander what they have been given will be stripped of their gifts. They will be stripped of their opportunities because it was wasted on them. And if that's not harsh enough, oh, by the way, he throws in this one little thought. He said, you remember how there were a bunch of people who not only did they not serve him well, not only did they not utilize the opportunities that they were given, but there were a bunch who said, we don't even want this sucker as our king. And he said, I haven't forgotten them. Bring every one of them in here before me. Kill them while I watch. Anybody want to take a while? Guess what that symbolizes? For those who would dare to think, oh, God's a good old guy. He's everybody's grandpappy in heaven. So when it comes down to it, we're all going to be good in the end, right? He is showing us a little glimpse of the richness, of the lavishness of his love and of his rewards and of the severity of his judgment. Everybody. Everybody who hears of Christ gets to choose. Are you going to embrace Him as your King? Or are you going to say, I don't want somebody else telling me what to do and how to live my life? Guess what? You don't have to let anybody else tell you how to live your life. But there will come a day when you will be called to account for whether or not you ever let Jesus be your King. And if you did not, it will be the worst day that you could ever imagine. It will take all of the worst days of your life rolled together and make them look like a picnic. Because the king's justice is so severe. Now here is one little extra thought for no extra charge. You go home and chew on this one. When I hear Christians talk about the judgment and about the reality of heaven, they talk in terms of essentially only two kinds of people. Them that get in and them that don't. And it's woohoo, glory, glory time for everybody who gets in. 
and it's misery and suffering for those who don't. Yet it's interesting to note that in this parable, there appear to be three groups of people. There are subjects of the king for whom the king's return is wonderful news. And it involves great reward and celebration. There are those on the other end of the spectrum who never embraced him as king. And his return means misery and death. But there's a third group of people. They are the ones who are subjects of the king. They belong to the kingdom. And the king's return is not good news. Because they had not used the opportunities that they had been given. They are not rejected. They are not put to death. But his return is a sobering moment. And in the story, it is a moment of shame and of loss. And oh, by the way, this is not the only place in the New Testament where we read about the judgment of God. For the people of God, for some of those people, being a moment that's not, woohoo, glory, glory, this is all so good. We live with this misperception that heaven is just the same experience for everyone who gets there. And it's like, I don't care if I'm the last one in. I don't care if I'm the lowest dirty dog that gets in. Just as long as I get in. That is not a correct New Testament biblical teaching. How we live our lives. What we do with the opportunities that we are given is critical to what our experience will be for the rest of our life on earth and what we experience in eternity. It matters what you do with the opportunities that you've been given. Now, here's maybe one of the most important truths for, for many of us here. The instruction of the king before he becomes king as he's leaving, as he leaves these, these resources, as he leaves these opportunities and says, put them to work. He doesn't tell them how. He doesn't tell them what to do. Does it tell them how far to, to go in terms of taking risks? He just says, you put them to work. Do something worthwhile with this. And when I come back, I'll see what you've done. I hear from people all along who, when I talk to them about, okay, so, I mean, this is a fundamental thing we have as we talk about following Christ. What are you doing to serve the Lord? It's a fair question, isn't it, for everybody here who professes to be a follower of Christ? What are you doing to serve the Lord? I, I'm not talking about going to church. You didn't serve Jesus by showing up to sit here and, and sing songs that somebody else prepared the music for and listen to a sermon that somebody else prepared. This isn't serving the Lord. Hopefully, this is worshiping Him and this is getting fed, but this isn't serving the Lord. What are you doing to serve the Lord? And I will frequently hear people say, well, I don't know, I just haven't really felt led to anything in particular. I'm not talking down to you, but I am going to talk straight to you. It's time to throw that out. That's not sound thinking. This whole thing about, I just I haven't really felt led toward anything. I, I believe Oswald Chambers has it right when he says this. Our service to God is about what we choose to give back to God. It is not about waiting to see what God tells us that we should do in order to serve Him. That the vast majority of the time, that God is the one who says, Look, I'm giving you life. I'm giving you health. I'm giving you resources. I'm putting needy people around you. Now I'm going to watch to see what you do. I've given you these opportunities. Now let's see what you choose to do as a gift back to me. Your service to God is a gift to God. And He is a loving Father who's going, This is going to be fun. Let's watch to see what my son, what my 
my daughter does here. I've given them the resources and I've said, put it to work. Now let's see what they do. For those of us who go, well, you know, I just haven't really felt led in a particular direction. Stop waiting to be divinely led with some thunderous voice or some sign from the sky that says, hey, you're supposed to go work with the youth. You're supposed to open your home. You're supposed to serve in this shelter or whatever it is. Look for opportunities. The guys who were found faithful, they couldn't just sit back and wait for somebody to come to them and multiply their money. They had to get out there. They had to invest it. They had to take some chances. Some of them worked out. Some of them did not. But those who were rewarded were those who took initiative and said, it's our responsibility to go out and take the chances to invest, to try and do something. For some of us who have been sitting on the sidelines... If Jesus returned today, it wouldn't be great news. And it's not because that means you're headed for hell. There are a lot of people who belong to the kingdom. And yet Jesus' return would be the most sobering, gut-wrenching thing. It would be grand to see the king and to know that you belong to him. But it would be rather sickening to have him look at you and say, What did you do? With the opportunities that I gave you. Well, Lord, I just never really felt led to do anything with that. So I just kind of I just kind of hung tight and waited around. I sort of just held on to those opportunities, waiting until the time was right. I think to that he's going to say the time was right every day. I told you put to work what I gave to you. What have you done with it? He does not accept excuses at all, but he richly rewards faithfulness. In eternity, your experience will be radically different if you use the opportunities and resources in this life for kingdom causes. Your future on earth will be radically different in terms of what God does with you if you're faithful with the opportunities that you're given. Now, I mean, some of us right now, we've been given what seem in the, in the eyes of the world to be very Small, insignificant opportunities. An opportunity to influence one person at work. An opportunity to disciple a little group of children or a little group of teens. A couple of preschoolers on Sunday morning. And it feels like that's so small. I mean, some weeks nobody even shows up. He is watching to see what you do with the opportunity that you have been given. And the one who has been found faithful in a little will be given responsibility for a lot. That brings us to the fifth truth in the, the parable, and that is the king's values and the king's agenda supersede everything else. The whole parable illustrates this point. All of life revolves around what the king wants, what the king has commissioned, what the king desires, answering to the king. It's, it's all about the king and about the kingdom. It's why every time Jesus talked... When he opened his mouth, he's talking about the kingdom. He's trying to help us understand what kingdom values are, what kingdom life is all about. He came to bring us into the kingdom and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. The kingdom of God, which is the rule of God in the lives of men and women and all of the benefits that it entails. Well, what does that look like? The first little story that we read, the link that it has to the parable is that that first little story is the embodiment of most of the key principles of the kingdom. Those ten verses give us a glimpse of the king's agenda. When we hear the parable about 
the king being away and, you know, multiplying opportunities that have been given. And we go, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? He's in that moment living out an example of what he's talking about. Making the most of opportunities. Let's back up to the original story. In the story, Jesus shows up in Jericho. As always, seemingly always, people are pressing in. They want a little piece of Jesus. They want to hear His teaching. They want to touch Him. They want to be healed by Him. They want something from Him. He has become so intriguing that even a wicked man like Zacchaeus is climbing up in a tree just because he wants to catch a glimpse of Him. I just want to find out what this guy's all about. And out of all the people pressing in to see Jesus, it's Zacchaeus that Jesus picks out. I can only imagine that in that moment, I mean, he just stops and is like, what a strange sight. A little runt in a tree. I mean, that's, that's got to be pretty peculiar. A grown man, well-dressed. He probably looks over and says, Jim, who is this guy? Yeah, the little guy up in the tree. Who is he? Oh, man, you, you do not want to mess with him. He is one of the most notorious guys in the city. He takes old women's homes away from them when they can't pay the exorbitant taxes that he's jacked up so that he can pocket half the money. He, he just has done unspeakable things. He claims to be a Jew. We won't have anything to do with him. He's no Jew. He sided with Rome. We hate him. Stay away from him. I can just picture Jesus stopping and looking and thinking. So he looks around at the crowd and he looks up at the little runt in the tree. What was his name again, Jim? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come down here. I would love to eat at your house today. Can't you hear in that moment just silence across the crowd? A bit of, no. <gasps> he must not know who he is. He must think he's got like a disability or something. No. Somebody needs to tell him he's one of the leading members of the mafia. He's a scumbag. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. We don't know what all happened there other than Jesus spoke truth to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was radically changed in one afternoon. And he came out and declared, I'm giving half of my possessions to the poor and anybody I've ripped off, I'm going to repay them four times whatever I have stolen from them. And Jesus declares, you're looking at a man who truly is a son of Abraham. Five real deal kingdom values that we see in this story, at least five. And the first one is this, acceptance. The rejected, the despised, the broken are warmly embraced in the kingdom and by kingdom people. Now, in Jesus' day, it's so easy to pick out who that is. Tax collector, chief tax collector, rich tax collector. Remember, this isn't a parable. This is real life. And Jesus says, of all the people who are here today, he is the one I am strategically going after. Because I want you to get it. I have come for people like him. I have come for him. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. The church, the Christian church, has in general principle said, Jesus died for the sins of the world and we are here for the world. Jesus loves you and we love you. But the church is made up of real, ordinary people like you and me. 
people who've been hurt by others, people who grew up with prejudices, people who have learned to make judgments about others based upon their appearance or their background, their track record. And that's the stumbling block for us. So I just want to ask you, when it comes to acceptance of the broken, the unlovely, the rejected, who do you have a hard time accepting? Who has the church had a hard time accepting? Well, that's not real hard to figure out the second half of the question. Churches have struggled with a lot of different groups of people. Different churches have. Some churches get really hung up on things like guys who've got long hair or ladies who've got short hair or people who've got a lot of piercings or who have a lot of tattoos. Ooh, those kinds of people. Some churches get really hung up on people who have addiction issues, struggle with alcohol, struggle with drugs. Oh, those people. We've got to be careful. We've got to keep those people away from our kids. And to that, Jesus said, that's exactly who I'm, who I'm after. And if you represent me, that's exactly who you better be after. Churches today oftentimes will look around and say, we are here for the world. But if you're into any kind of sexually kinky stuff, and especially if you're into same-sex attraction kind of stuff, ooh, that just weirds us out. And Jesus said, that's the person I'd climb a tree to go after. And hey, let's say the obvious. Look around the room. Look around the room. No, literally. Look around the room. <laughs> Any observations? Still the most segregated hour of the week. We could walk across the street to our sister church. It's going to look just about as segregated as it does over here. We've got to get past this. We have got to get past this. This doesn't change until ordinary people like you and I begin to strategically reach out and build relationships with people who don't look like us, whose culture is not the same as ours, and to say, Jesus came for you. And I care about you. Do, do you recognize there is a vast difference between saying, we will accept you if you come to our place at 9 o'clock or 10.30 on Sunday morning. Don't be late. If you come to our place and dress acceptably and worship the way that we worship, we will accept you. Do you realize how different that is from pursuing those people? From saying, okay, you're not a part of the crowd that's pressing in to join us on Sunday. You're the skeptic who's up in the tree going, I know you hate me. I know all of you hate me. I'm not about to come to your place. And for us to be the ones who say acceptance means that we go, you know what? We love you. In fact, I love you so much. I'd love to eat with you. You might not be willing to go to church with me, but would you have coffee with me? Would you go to lunch with me? Acceptance means we pursue the broken, the rejected, the people who are not like us. And that doesn't mean we just embrace this collectively as a church and say, okay, we've got to accept whoever comes in the door. No, it means we strategically pursue people that by nature we likely would not pursue. Jesus modeled acceptance 
when he finished this story up by saying salvation has come to this house today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. There's nothing that a Jew is more proud of than being a Jew and telling the, the Gentile world, you ain't one of us. And when they would look at, at people like Zacchaeus, they would say, you never have access to the temple. You don't belong to us. You're not even considered a child of Abraham anymore. We reject you. It's like being excommunicated. And Jesus, it's like he's putting his arm around Zacchaeus and saying, if ever I saw a son of Abraham in this crowd, this little guy right here is it. Because he is embodying the ideals of the kingdom now. He has trusted me and we're about to see some other things that he has just absorbed in his life that has demonstrated that he is a member of the kingdom. And that brings us to the second truth. And that is the second ideal and value of the kingdom is one of compassion where the lost are intentionally pursued. Jesus didn't just accept him. He went after him. The question for us becomes how willing are we to be resourceful and strategic in looking for who we're going to go after. I'm not going to camp on this. I'm simply going to point this out. If you want to be strategic in going after the lost, remember what Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're going to follow that example, and if you want to be effective, one simple principle, you look for the neediest people around you. And need can be defined a bunch of different ways. But you look for the neediest people, and I'll show you by and large the most accepting people of what you're going to have to say. You find the people who are hurting the most. You find the people who feel the most rejected. And they may look like they are the furthest from God. And I'll show you the people who are most in touch with their needs for God. In the kingdom strategically seeking these people out, caring enough to, to meet their needs, to do acts of compassion where we don't just say, hey, come to church with me and listen to a guy stand up and talk about God in the Bible. Most people are going to reject that if that's all that we have to offer. But if we reach out seeking to meet them where they are, that's liable to involve going in their home, them coming in your home, sharing meals together, those kinds of things. This is what it looks like to make the most of the opportunities that we've been given by the king. This is what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. A third value, third part of the agenda is generosity. That those with resources share with those in need. When Zacchaeus got saved, what are the first two things that he declared? I'm giving half of what I own to the poor, and everybody that I've cheated, I'm repaying fourfold what I've, what I've got from them inappropriately. We would love to turn that into advanced Christianity and say we haven't arrived at that. This is day one for him. This is if you've got one afternoon to sit down with Jesus and Jesus is talking to you about what it means to trust him and to belong to the kingdom and to embrace his agenda in your life. Zacchaeus is a picture of if you just got one afternoon to find out what is it really all about and you walk away and apply what he just said, that here's what you walk away saying. I care about the poor. And I will do whatever I need to. I am going to let go of a lot of what I possess to supply the needs of the poor. Because I know this, having sat down at the table with the king, the thing you cannot escape is that the king is obsessed with caring for the poor. 
In fact, the king, when he stood up and declared who he was with the Isaiah 61 scroll at the beginning of his ministry, and he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, he opened with this line, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I am here for people who are in need. Jesus understood that it's people in need who would run to the kingdom, who would run to him. And it is a fundamental part of Christianity. I mean, it, it's very, very difficult. You have to play mental gymnastics to get to a place that you can truly say that you are a Christian and yet you're greedy. And by greedy, I mean you're not generous with those in need. You don't tithe. You spend the vast majority of what you have on yourself. I mean, in the New Testament church, faith in Christ was so equated to generosity that Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, you're not allowed to share a meal with a greedy Christian. Did you hear that? I'm not twisting it. He says, you don't get to break bread. Do not sit down at the table with a brother or sister who is greedy. How many of us would spend a lot of time eating alone if we lived by that standard today? In the kingdom, this whole idea of making the most of the opportunities that we've been given, a big part of that's about relationships, but a big part about that is generosity. It is about taking the resources that you've been given and using them to bless and serve others. That's blessing the people who are around you. That's blessing people in this church and through this church. It's about things like sponsoring kids in other countries where just a little bit of your income radically changes an entire family's experience. Keeping them from starving. Getting them health care. Getting them education, which will change their lives. And making sure that they hear the gospel all the way through. I mean, really, when you get down to it, who among us, I would dare say very few, that couldn't do that? We've just got to be willing to, to make some adjustments in our lifestyles. I mean, you think Zacchaeus isn't going to have to adjust his lifestyle when he gives away half of what he has, plus he gives away fourfold of everything he's ever stolen from anybody? Sounds to me like Zacchaeus is about to be on a very limited income. Now he's not going to be able to cheat anybody anymore. He's giving back everything he's cheated from others. It sounds like he's moving back to a much more modest lifestyle in order to bless others. Fourth kingdom principle here is one of community. Reconciliation and right relationships have to be actively pursued. Immediately, he says, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I've got to pay back four times the amount. I don't believe Jesus told him to pay back four times the amount. I believe that he just talked to him about doing what was necessary to restore these relationships because everybody hated him with good cause. He had robbed everybody around him and he had the authority to do it. He was a tax collector and tax collectors had the authority to say, oh, you owe 4000 in taxes this year. Then that means you have to pay 7000 because I get what's left after Caesar gets his 4000 and I'd like 3000 from you and you have no recourse. You don't get to appeal that. And he's realized they have a reason to hate me. And there's only one way to make this right. I've got to go back to each of them individually and say, help me to, to go back and figure out how much did I take from you on top of what you should have been taxed? 
And now I want to make this right. I don't want to just give back what I took away. I want to bless you. I want to do whatever it takes to restore this relationship. You see, he can't truly be a son of Abraham without belonging to Abraham's family, the community of faith. In the kingdom of God, we value community. It doesn't leave room for us to say, well, I just ain't into organized religion, which I've always found kind of silly because I'm like, you'll love our church. We're disorganized religion. You'll, be, you'll fit right in here. But truly, you can't belong in the kingdom without belonging in the community of faith. And that means that we are willing to work through differences, that we're always committed to reconciliation and working things out. And I'm just I'm making this appeal to you. A part of this kingdom value is this. You're going to get offended. You're going to get offended at somebody else in this room. You're going to get offended by the people in your small group or your small group leader. Hey, the most likely person to offend you is me. You listen to me talk for a long time every week. And I am not subtle in the things that I say. When I'm right, I'm very right. And when I'm wrong, I'm very wrong. And I will offend at some point along the way. Not because I want to, but I just will. And if we are not committed to community, reconciliation, and right relationships, when you get offended, chances are you'll leave. Unless you embrace this kingdom value and say, what the king says is the word that we live by. And the king has called us to live in community. And when we're not right with each other, he's given us an agenda for making that right. And what the king said was, when you come to worship in the midst of worship, if you realize there's something wrong between you and a brother or sister, you get up, you leave your gift at the altar, and you go find them, and you do whatever it takes to make that right. Because in the kingdom, we don't get mad at each other and pout and run to the next church down the road and tell them what a dirty dog our last pastor or last small group leader was. We work through our differences because community really matters. This is one of the most winsome and inviting things for lost people is to see people who truly love each other, who treat each other like family. And in a family, we work out our differences. If I make you mad, come tell me how I made you mad. Let's talk through it. Let's do that together. Agreed? Fifth and final kingdom principle. It's the simplest one. It's just justice. In the kingdom, we always seek to bring the king's justice everywhere. Righteousness and justice, the scripture says, are the foundations of God's throne. Justice is just about making sure that people are treated right. And that idea of Zacchaeus saying, if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. It just means I haven't been doing people right, and it's time that I make that right, that I begin to treat people right. And a part of of the kingdom agenda is this. It's that we treat each other fairly, that we're fair in every regard and, and that we are just, but that we fight for justice. In a world where there is so much injustice around us. Students, on your school campuses, you see injustice all the time. Where people get mistreated, they get ostracized, because they can't buy the right clothes or because they, you know, whatever. They don't have the cool car. That w- You see injustice. You see cruelty. What would the king have you do to bring justice where you see injustice? Adults, it's not so different in our world, is it? We see injustice on big scales and on small scales. In the kingdom, we fight for justice for others. Life in the kingdom is pretty different, isn't it? pretty different from what the world would suggest. It's pretty different from church, isn't it? Pretty different from church that I grew up in. And yet it's an incredibly inviting thing where there is acceptance 
compassion, generosity, real community, and a fight for justice. I would want to live in a place like that. I hope you do too, because heaven's going to be miserable otherwise. (laughs) Would you join me as we go to the Lord together? As you're watching online, I want to invite you to just bow with us together in prayer. I just want to make this simple offer. And that is that you belong to the kingdom by belonging to the king. It's an amazing thing that he does not force us in this life to be his subjects. He is quite the noble man, quite the gentleman Jesus is. He invites you to know him, to trust him, to serve him. But it's your call. It may be that you have looked from a distance, that you've been evaluating this. I want to invite you today. Would you step across the line? Jesus is the real deal. He is faithful. He is good. He is the one king that you can trust. His power never corrupts him. He is faithful to those who serve him. If today you'd like to embrace him as Lord and King of your life, would you pray a simple prayer with me? That begins with two key words. Lord Jesus. I believe in you. And I need you. I believe you died in my place. And that you rose from the dead. And now I'm asking you to come and live in me. To take away the stain of my sins. And to give me a new life. And a fresh start. Would you give direction in my life? Would you give me the power to live for you? I promise you, if you prayed that prayer from your heart, God heard it and He answered it. And part of His answer was He he put a deposit in you. It's the person of His Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would bring your life to bear in us. And for some who today have trusted you, I pray that you would set their hearts on fire, that your agenda would be their agenda. There are a lot of us listening today who are Christians, who've known Jesus for a long time, but who have gotten off course. And today was about course correction. Today was about re-embracing Jesus as Lord and King of your life so that what He values, you now value. And if that's what you need to do today, would you just say that in your heart? I don't need to give you the words. Would you just declare that you want Jesus to be your Lord? That you want to live by His values and His agenda? Lord, I pray today that you would do a lasting work in our lives and that you would make of us true kingdom people who would honor you, who would represent you well in the world. Thank you for the way that you honor us with your call and with the opportunities that you give us. Help us not to waste them. Help us to see how we can use our gifts, where we can serve you. Help us to be strategic in reaching out to others. And we pray this, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.